how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show. This is episode 359 with Bisha K. Ali, screenwriter for Loki, Miss Marvel. She's also known for Four Weddings and a Funeral and a show called Sex Education. In this interview, we talk about how she got her start back when she was in the UK and trying to break in. She did stand up for about eight to ten years um, and how she kind of found her footing and, and got seen and noticed and then had a pile of scripts. Luckily, she had been working on so We talk about some of those early ideas, the spec scripts, what she loves about the writer's room, a little bit of everything else. Um, you can also look for this interview on the Creative Screenwriting website. And a little bit later in the interview, we talk about uh, the Moon Knight writer, Jeremy Slater. I've also linked that down below. That's episode 351. Enjoy the interview. A writer, a teacher who gave me too much validation for writing a short story, I think. Um, I remember, I actually have a really distinct memory of it, of like writing a story when I was eight, a short story at school. And then the next week, the teacher made me read it out to the class because he was like, this is so good. And then the, my classmates being like, wait, who's this kid, kid who's been sitting in the corner for the past, I don't know, six years? Um, and it, I think that validation immediately. And I think also storytelling is... Um, from in my family has always been kind of part of our culture um oral storytelling um and I think that's something that's been handed down is really ingrained as well um so that was really fundamentally part of me and then also the fact that as you can tell from the aforementioned nobody knew who I was in this classroom um I was very much an indoor kid and so I was raised on television and movies and that was my obsessions from when I was a child. So I've always wanted to be in this one way or another. I just didn't know that there was space for me in an industry like this until I got a fair bit older. Um, so yes, it's always been about storytelling for me in one in one format or another. Was it difficult? So, so I'm introverted. A lot of writers are introverted. Was it difficult as you moved from writing solo to the writer's room? Was that any, how'd you kind of handle that transition? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I don't know that I'm an introvert necessarily. I think 
I was more just like an uncool kid <laughs> but in my case um I think I feed off of the energy of other writers a lot and I really enjoy being part of that creative collaboration mm-hmm. and being in a writer's room is like oh it's the best it's, it's actually more fun when you're not the head of the writer's room because then you're kind of constantly pitching ideas and pitching solves and that's really fun and exciting for me um when you're the head of writer's room the kind of dynamic shifts a bit and you have to be like oh wait no I have to figure out all of it <laughs> and then we together we'll figure out the solves and pull the pieces together but I love working in writer's rooms I think even now like if there's an opportunity for me to dip into a writer's room which I've done on a few of my friends shows since um since being back in the UK there's just so much it's just the best so I really like that environment but I also need to recharge I also need to be like okay that's that and now I need like five days of nothingness in a room by myself please so I kind of had both of those together I need I need both in tandem I think so I see like a, a staff writer credits written by episodes on um, four weddings and a funeral and sex education. What was kind of your break in story though? Like, how did you kind of find your way into the business? Um, I think I had, I've had quite an interesting journey because I started on this side of the Atlantic, right? So I started in the UK mm-hmm. um, and it's a very different, it's a much smaller industry and it's very, very different. Certainly at the time that I started, now there are more and more writers rooms in the UK, but that's not really a thing like that wasn't really a thing and the sex education having a writer's room was new and rare so um I kind of lucked out in terms of timing that now it's much more popular to have writers rooms in the UK but at that time obviously it wasn't so um getting into that room was really the first step in everything else that then kind of uh, snowballed afterwards I was doing stand-up for about eight years people keep listing me as a stand-up still I'm like I haven't done stand-up since I moved to LA four years ago so please stop calling me a stand-up it's <laughs> embarrassing um but I was doing stand-up I had been doing it for eight maybe ten years I actually can't do, remember the math but um that process kind of a, gives you a thick skin and also the joy of being doing stand-up is you can write something as you walk on stage test it immediately and get feedback and I think the immediacy of that is also it's the adrenaline of it you can't really get that hit in a writer's room in quite the same way um but that kind of was my first step into um putting a work out there in a really immediate way through stand-up and then that kind of evolved and as I was doing stand-up in the UK a lot of I think similar in the US in kind of the comedy side of things that producers will come to um shows to see who's who's new who's doing stuff um and it was one of one of these producers who came to one of the shows that I was at and then she went to a lot of the other gigs that I was doing her name's Amy Annette I think I kind of feel like it all started with Amy Annette for me um Amy first saw me there she worked for a production company in the UK called Tiger Aspect and she said I fully believe that you have scripts please show them to me and she was right I had loads I was sitting on a pile of scripts I showed some to her and then she put on um a table read and we invited loads and loads of industry players to that table read in the UK. So we, uh, Sky had funded it. Sky was a network in the UK. They had funded it. We put on this table read. There were 15 agents in the room. There were also producers from different production companies in the room. Because it was really not about, let's make this show for television. It was really about, let's introduce this writer to the industry. Mm. I think that point of difference is really important, especially early doors. Um, so off the back of that, I ended up signing to my agents in the UK and off the back of that I was going out my generals and I ended up um, being in the writing for sex education and then I was still at that time still doing stand-up and I think um, CAA had heard me on a podcast so their kind of UK recruiter was listening to a podcast I was a guest on it and they were like who's this funny lady Um, and they reached out to my agents got hold of my scripts and they said timing couldn't be more perfect there's a show that's got an international element to it which was four weddings and a funeral um and specifically the character one of the characters who's one of the lead characters is from my hometown or the one of the places that I kind of grew up so I was like yes please I have an in here um and kind of 
all of that kind of collided together. My agents put me in the best position for that job. And then the rest was on me, right? It's to have my craft up to scratch and get the job and make the move across. So that was kind of the beginning. So I really think it's, I always call it snowballing, but it's, it's a tiny, it's all the things that you've been working on by yourself and suddenly it just all starts to snowball together. What were those early spec scripts like? Is there an idea oh you could kind of share with us? Were they all like comedic in nature? What were they What were they kind of like? It was a mix of things. So I had one, I had so many, some that will never see the light of day. Um, there were some like pure sitcom uh, uh, spec scripts and there was some kind of weird in-between stuff that was like a sitcom about a woman whose ovaries are killing her because I've grown up with PCOS, which affects your ovaries. And kind of you'd cut to the ovaries talking to her and things, weird stuff like that. So kind of weird stuff that kind of showed off my personality and kind of my angle through the world. Um, so little sitcoms like that. Then there was some hard sci-fi, like really hardcore, big world building, massive sci-fis that you would never give to a new, you never produce with a new writer, but it was kind of like, here's the highest ambition of what I would want to do. And I still, I'm, I'm going to make that show one day. I've pro- committed to myself. Um, so I had a, a real mix of all the different things I wanted to do. And I think, I think you get loads of, I think people tend to get loads of different advice on, should I focus on this one thing or this one genre or this one space? And for me, I was always like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so I'm going to focus on the things that make my heart sing. And then hopefully someone will connect to some element or part of me and we'll see what happens. And I think that's really helped not only with getting that first job, but also then making the move into genre. I wouldn't have been able to make that initial move into genre, which is where my heart is, um, without having those um, sci-fi scripts as well. This might be a difficult question to answer, but back then when you were just writing specs and kind of piling them up to some degree, what, where was the ambition coming from where a lot of people don't finish the first scripts? Like what made you put the work ethic in, I guess? I don't know. I just really wanted to do it in it. Like that's kind of fundamentally what it comes down to is I just really wanted to do it. And it got to a point. I mean, I was working so many, I've worked in so many different fields, not so many, I've worked in a few different fields before, and I know what it is to work in a job that is either too emotionally fraught to continue or is because of the nature of the job or because you don't fit with what that job is. Um, and I've kind of spent a lot of time doing all those things. And I just knew that, I don't know, it's a good, it's an interesting question. What made me carry on? I don't know, like a deep sense of hopelessness and anyway so I might as well maybe that's maybe that's why I just carried on um but I also just really loved it I really loved the process of creating something from scratch or trying to communicate this like massive thing that's in my head that I just can't get out and trying to find a way to put it on the page and then being looking at be like this is nothing like what I had in my head how can I refine it more towards what it is and how can I revise this more how can I share it with like trusted creatives who then are going to add to it and help me build it and grow it and I think that all of that stuff if you don't like that process of writing my god just don't do it (laughs) don't do it so painful if you don't like that specific process I think so Mm. um not to say it's all kind of all roses obviously I also hate it and hate everything I've written ever so (laughs) I've got a bit of both in me nonetheless so you mentioned uh, you wanted to kind of move into genre. What were you like? What were you interested in at the time? Was it Marvel? Was it other things? Like how do you kind of define genre? Um, it wasn't specifically Marvel, to be honest. That wasn't kind of like oh, the big goal is to work on a Marvel show. That wasn't really it. It was more. Um, how do I? How do I say? Um, I look at kind of the work of um, Guillermo del Toro, and I've just. Mm-hmm. He's just like a hero. <laughs> just love everything that he's ever done. I um, mean, I look at kind of um, Severance is a great example. I think I actually interviewed Early Doors around the same time for the Severance 
Prince Right Room and also for Loki around the same time. And I think mm. at the time the Loki one just came through with an offer quicker. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna take the job that I can get. Um and so there was I really always feel like there's a sliding doors moment because I also feel like, man, I'd love to have been in that severance writing room as well. So um the I think there's a big range of things that I was really um interested in. And I think with the Marvel of I knew that that's a very unique opportunity. They were just starting to do their writers rooms for television as in terms of Marvel Studios specifically. And mm. to see how it works, to see the inside of that, there's an experiential element to me, my decisions as well. I'm like, oh, I'm going to experience something there that I don't know where else I could experience it. And I'm often driven by what can I learn from that thing in my choices? Um, so that was a big part of that decision as well. Um, but genre-wise, how would I define genre? I don't know, to be honest. It's a good question. Like, I look at Yellow Jackets. I'm like, that's a genre. I would, oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with that show. Yeah. Um, that's a, a great show that I'd love to have been a part of. Um, I think anyone, anywhere working would probably look at that show and be like, oh my God, I want to get inside all their brains. Um, so I'm really drawn to slightly darker than Marvel, I would say, um, projects mm-hmm. with a with a kind of a world that's left of left of center, just kind of to the left of our reality when we're mm-hmm. when they're build, doing their world building, I'm really drawn to that. It sounds like I mean, obviously, one is great television. Two parts of genre are maybe there's still some rules there. Like there's still some expectations from the audience, even though you can twist and turn those to some degree. Um, what was your experience like on Loki? Because this was one of the first shows. It's it's kind of one of the first to if we think of you know, phase two and three is really interconnected. Phase four is changing a little bit, like it's still connected, but it can go way out there. Like, how do you think of Loki and the things to come? Um, I, th- I would argue, I would, yeah. I would push back on that a go little bit. It. I go would argue it. that Loki is deeply interconnected to what we're about to see and what's gone on in mm-hmm. even the features that we've seen. Cause the end of Loki, mm-hmm. like, I don't know what kind of language I'm allowed to use here, but like we it. fucked everything up <laughs> at the end of Loki, right? The the door has become op- has opened as a result, direct result of the end of that show. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that we're intricately involved in the wider MCU, and I think um, even when uh, even when things might appear that they're not as connected, I think some things will uh, shake out in the wash, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really exciting. It's cool to be part of this larger storytelling kind of web mountain I don't know how you want to <laughs> what you want to call uh, what the MCU has accomplished over the last decade um so yeah I think that's that I, so just to push back on that I do think it actually has profound effects on the rest of what we get, see in the next phase and in the rest of this phase too um I also think in terms of what I learned from being in the Loki writers room it was really different I think it's really different I think having um so much interconnection in terms of where the show ended up and the fact that we had a character who's pre-existing and that mm. millions of people love, like Loki is beloved as a character and already exists in the imagination of so many people. And there's, um, there's feel, you feel a responsibility for it, but you also feel really excited. Like, okay, so this person's been through this, this and this. What, can, what journey can we take them on over a, quite a long period of time, over six hours in collectively a huge amount of screen time for this one character. So we're giving them more, them, we're spending more time with this character than we've ever spent before. Um, and so that's really the thrill of that is that to kind of, I think one of the things I took away from is to kind of really um, lavish in it, lavish in that time. It's re- really excited that we get to have this character for so long. And I think that was really the excitement that we pushed through and ended up in Miss Marvel as well. But yes, Loki was a really great experience. And I think with my episode in particular, I was given so much freedom to go away and build the world that I wanted to create on Lamentis um, Mm -hmm. to the extent that I was like, really guys, you just want me to go and do it? Okay, 
okay, just backing out of the room. <laughs> um, and that was really joyful. And I really, I love doing that. So yeah, it was a great experience, great learning about how they want to make television, which, you know, is very specific to the MCU because because of that interconnectivity, because of that experience in features, um, it's figuring out how that plugs into um, television in, in production terms is was kind of the big piece that they were all figuring out in that first phase of, first wave of television shows. You, when you guys were talking about the bigger picture for Loki's journey through that um, six episodes, are you still having conversations of whether or not he's good or bad, or does that not matter? Is it more about what's, how he's interacting, how he's growing scene to scene, moment to moment? Like, are you having those simple, you know, old school black and white? Is this a good guy or a bad guy or not really anymore? I don't think it's as black and white as good guy or bad guy, because I think, especially, this is just my, I can't speak for the whole writer's room, certainly can't speak for um, anybody but myself. I think when we look at in terms of like good guy, bad guy, I think it might be too facile when we're looking at six hours of exploration of a character. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to look deeper than that in order to construct something that feels uh, 3D. And a character who goes on a real journey and is moved from one place to another by the end. I think good and bad, we've been through that ro- roller coaster with Loki, right? Of like, if you're a good guy, if you're a bad guy. Fundamentally, he's responsible for a lot of horrible, horrible stuff. <laughs> um, and it's the point at which we pick up with that character after the events of Endgame, or kind of in the events of Endgame, technically, um, where we pick up from that character, where is he at? What were his desires and wants in that moment? And how do we um, unwrap this character from that point forward with the amount of time we have? So I think, um, from my perspective, I think good guy, bad guy is a little too um, one or the other. Because of the luxury of time that we have, we have to kind of go a bit deeper than that and be like, well, what moves Loki? What has... What has he not had? And if we are saying, say, for example, if we're starting him as in the public imagination, he's been a bad guy, then what um, has led to that in a real way? Like, why is he that person? And is that in his nature or is that a result of everything that he's experienced? And what can we give him that he's never had before? Or what can we bring close to his proximity that he's never had before? And how will that change him? And I think that was those are the kind of conversations we were having um, for Loki's character arc. Tell me kind of how you went from Loki to Miss Marvel. Were you were you pitching? Were you asked to kind of come in? What was that logistics of that process like? It's a combination of things. So our exec on uh, Loki, his name's Kevin Wright. He's brilliant. And he um, he and I had become like quite close because we've become, that's what happens when you're working on a show. And I had said to him, I don't know if you guys are doing a Miss Marvel show, but if you are, you must just please, you have to get me a meeting with whoever is the lead exec on it. Um, and on the day he kind of denied it, he was like, I don't know. I don't know. We don't really talk about, I don't know. And the next day he came in and was like, yeah, I got you a meeting. Don't mess it up. Um, So I kind of had the first meeting with the execs. And then um, off the back of that, kind of they speak to multiple writers, which is kind of a lot of projects, speak to a lot of writers. And then eventually I pitched to Kevin, Victoria and Lou. And I was like, here's my approach. Here's what I would do. Here's the story. Um, Here's the character arcs please love me. Goodbye. Um, so that, that was the brief of my pitch. So I pitched to them and then it was kind of rock and roll from there. It's like, let's go, let's do, let's make this show. So they were going, the thing with Marvel is they're going to make the shows they're going to make regardless of if I exist or not. It's who's going to tell a version of the story that's going to bring something to it. And is going to bring something that um, is close to, not close to, but kind of is a new addition to the MCU, but also can fit into what exists in the MCU as well. And what were some of their conversations or your conversations like without, you know, giving away spoilers? So I took, I spoke with Jeremy Slater who pitched for Moon Knight. Um, 
who kind of came in and said that it changed a lot because not just because it has to be a great original idea within the world, but it also like, it can't be like this other series that's happening six months later. So what were some of those maybe issues you faced? Yeah. So some of those issues were around her power set because I'm kind of, we were told from the top about, um, how they'd be different from the comics, but not what they would be. And so it was really important that I constructed and that we constructed a power set that still did the work of analogy that the comic, the power set does in the comic books, but then also fit into the MCU, as you say, like at one point there was one specific, I can't go into the specifics, but there's one specific type of power that I thought we, that we were really excited about and that spoke to her identity and sense of self. And they were like, oh, you mean like this thing that we're doing in X, Y, Z amount of time? <laughs> right, it's like, right. yes, I mean, precisely like that. So, so then you kind of have to shift gears. And so those things change. I think things that don't change are kind of the heart of the story, the character journey. If you're pitching something that feels really important, feels really vital in terms of that character journey, I never really received too much pushback on that in any way whatsoever. It was really more about those details of fine tuning how things would fit into um, into that into the MCU. So yeah, we did have to have some changes, and also in other ways that we're like, okay, so how you manifest that character journey through a specific um, set of story elements and they'll come back and say, oh, I'm really sorry, we understand what you're doing here, but that story element or this idea, this concept, uh, we're already doing that in this other thing that you don't know about. And then you just have to say, okay, well, how can I still manifest that character journey in a different way through story? So those are the kind, yes, Jeremy is right. (laughs) Jeremy's very correct. Those are the adjustments you have to make and be open to kind of and adaptable to shifting along the way because of this mysterious cloud of endless storytelling that's happening that you're not aware of. Did you feel any added pressure working on these Marvel series just because, you know, you know, millions of people are going to watch it as opposed to like a smaller thing where you can, you know, how do you kind of think about the balancing of like, it's got to kind of have the the popcorn feel, but also like a lot of heart, which Marvel has done so well. Yeah. I wasn't so worried about the heart. I was, and not even the popcorn, to be honest, I think I was, it's the, it's the scale of it, right. Is you mm-hmm. want to meet the, the expectation of the scale but also with our show with Miss Marvel I don't know we wanted to do it our way as well this is the little engine that could you know and I think we felt like underdogs from go and we kind of revel in being that we kind of enjoy slightly being able to say okay we're going to tell this story our way and that's kind of the key about the character as well that she's going to do things her way and so the fact that we as a team of writers were like well we're going to do this our way it kind of married up in a really nice joyful point of difference so I didn't really feel pressure of like millions of viewers in kind of this the millions of viewers because of Marvel being on such a huge scale certainly to some extent but the pressure actually was really more about the kinds of viewers that this show would get um and who we're representing and what the makeup of that audience is going to be specifically with Miss Marvel and I think that's where the pressure comes in in terms of we don't want to let our communities down Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Unfortunately, it was cut a little short there at the end. We were supposed to have one or two more, but experienced some technical difficulties. You can also read this article on the Creative Screenwriting website and look for other Marvel interviews we've done in the podcast, like with Moon Knight writer Jeremy Slater in episode 351, which we mentioned not long ago in this conversation. Thanks again.